as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. It is a time of the year in which people are going to be focusing all over on what we can be thankful for. And I'm glad we were able to begin this morning with a focus on what we can be thankful for. And uh, I did want to let you know, as with all the best laid plans when it comes down to put together a slideshow like this one, we did have some difficulty uh, last uh, night loading up some of the pictures, and that's why we made mention of those uh, who weren't pictured. I was also handed a note that the Lyles family, Rob and Kelly and their children who have become a part of this family, uh, were not included in that, and that was uh, totally unintentional, and we apologize for that. The good news is we can correct that before the next service. And so we're, we're so thankful for them, and, and we're thankful that we continue to grow together, and we hope that we can reach out and, and get to know each other. And this is that time of year, too, that we begin making a list of things for which we are most thankful. And so if you want to uh, be thinking of probably about 10 things per day, if we started today and we made a list of 10 things we were thankful for, by the time Thanksgiving rolled around, we should have a list of 100 things we're thankful for, and that's a wonderful activity uh, that I know David has introduced years ago, and it's been a blessing to many of us. And so I'd remind us to begin that as well. It's been almost a year ago that early one morning, Catherine and I were awakened by a knock at the door, and we don't usually get visitors this early in the morning. We were a little bit concerned, and as we went to answer the door, I opened it, and I was immediately a little bit nervous. There was a man standing there with a clipboard, and he had a truck with a trailer that was backed up into my driveway. And I thought that couldn't be a good sign. And he looked at me and he said, I'm here for the Harley. I looked back at him and I said, excuse me, trying to understand what, what he was telling me. He said, I'm here for the Harley Davidson. I'm here to pick it up. And he was there for a motorcycle, not just any motorcycle, but this motorcycle, a 2006 Harley Victory, which had apparently been purchased uh, in my name and a loan had been taken out in my name. And he was looking for it. Now, if you know me, you know that I couldn't pick a Harley Victory out of a lineup, much less purchase one or ride one. And so I was trying to get this point across to him, and I, I told him, I said, excuse me, you must have the wrong house. I'm sorry, sir. This, you know, we don't have that here. And he said, is your name Andrew Phillips? I said, yes, sir. He said, is this 1465 Brighton Circle? I said, it is. He said, are you a minister at the Mount Juliet Church of Christ? And... <laughs> I thought, he's pretty good. I said, well, yes, I am. And he said, then this is the right place. And so we, we went kind of round and round about that. And finally, I guess he took one look at me and realized I don't own a motorcycle. And he didn't even check the garage. He just took my word for it. And what had happened was there was another Andrew Phillips in the area who was way past due on more than one loan. And uh, the group that was hired to find him ended up finding us instead. And so we had to go through all of those 
fun activities of getting bank accounts changed and calling and making sure we get our credit report and that sort of thing. And I never will forget the feeling kind of in the pit of my stomach when I realized that someone was going out, was, was making purchases, and was doing things in my name, that my identity had been stolen. And if you've ever been in that circumstance before where you've had your identity stolen, where you've had someone using your identity, you know how that feels. Physical identity theft is scary. This morning, I'd like for us to think about something that's even scarier, and the consequences of which are far greater, and that is spiritual identity theft. Because as scary as it is for our physical identity to be taken from us, for someone else to be using it, it's even more dangerous for us to lose sight of our spiritual identity. And in the first century, Christians faced that same challenge, the same challenge we face today. In fact, one of the congregations to whom Paul wrote was located in Corinth. And when he wrote to the Corinthians, he was writing to a group of people that had come out of a lifestyle very different than the one God's laid out for us. They had come out of pagan practices and and immoral lives, and they were coming in, having been washed in the blood of Christ, they were living a new life. And yet, there were times in which they experienced that temptation to revert back to their old ways. In fact, in chapters 5 and 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul goes into great detail about the kind of immorality that was taking place in their congregation. Uh, The kinds of physical immorality that was going on, even... In chapter 6, brothers taking other brothers to court and defrauding one another. And he begins kind of a laundry list of all of these practices in which they used to walk, beginning in verse 9 and verse 10. And after he lists all of those things, in verse 11, he makes this statement. He says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. He said, you used to walk in this way, but that's not your identity anymore. You have a new spiritual identity as a result of being washed, of being sanctified, and being justified. This morning, for a few minutes, let's focus and study about our spiritual identity. As we focused on the cross these past few weeks, that's been a wonderful way to remind us of our true identity as Christians, to see the price that God paid for us and our obligation and joy in serving Him. We've talked in recent weeks about what it means to be justified. In fact, just last week, we talked about God's wrath and the way in which uh, there needed to be a sacrifice to both appease that wrath and also satisfy God's love. But look at a phrase that Paul uses here. You were sanctified. This morning, we're going to spend our time focusing on what it means to be sanctified. And we're going to do that by reading some passages out of the book of 1 Peter. So if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to turn to 1 Peter. We'll begin in chapter 1, and we'll look at the ways in which Peter calls us to live. Peter is writing to a group of Christians that have been scattered out, and they've been scattered out and are being persecuted for their faith. And so he is constantly giving instructions throughout 1 Peter on how to live, how to walk, what our lifestyle as Christians should look like. When we think about the word sanctification, it simply means to be set apart for a specific purpose. A a word that's related to that that we might use a little more often is holy. We think of Moses approaching the burning bush and, and taking off his sandals for he's on holy ground. We sing about this is holy ground. When something is holy, it is it is set apart. It is it is other, it is it is sanctified for a specific 
purpose. God is holy because he is not like us. He's set apart from us. And as God's people, we should also be sanctified, set apart for his specific purpose. And as we read through in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter begins by telling us that as Christians, we have a sanctified existence. As a Christian, I live a sanctified existence. Now let's begin in verse 13. He begins this passage with a phrase that might seem a little strange, maybe even difficult to understand in some of our translations when he says, therefore, in verse 13, gird up the loins of your mind. That might sound a little odd to us, but when we think about the kind of clothing that they would have worn in that time, uh, there would have been a long robe that in order to do any manual labor would have had to have, have been pulled up and even tucked in uh, to the belt there so that there could be some room to move uh, your legs. We might think of it as rolling up our shirt sleeves, getting to work, preparing our mind for action. And that's how Peter begins in verse 13. He says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter reminds us that we are to live a sanctified existence. And did you notice in verse 14, the term he used to describe us is obedient children of God? When I'm sanctified, when I'm united with Christ in his blood, I'm set apart to be an obedient child of God. I'm born into a new family. And for the, the Christians here, this would have been quite a difference from their former lives that were controlled by their lusts. In fact, later in verse 18, he would say that the way of life handed down from their forefathers was futile, was empty. Because they were born into a new family, all the things that had once seemed so important didn't seem so vital anymore. The pagan worship, that idol worship that had seemed like such a part of everyday life, all of a sudden, in view of God, was meaningless. The jockeying for position and, and trying to gain all the material wealth as possible that it once seemed so important in light of the riches of Christ was meaningless. It was futile. And this principle reminds me that it doesn't matter what's been handed down to me, I make the choice if I want to invest my life in something that really counts. In a few weeks, many of our families will be getting together. And if you've ever been in a family get-together where there's a lot of food and there are a lot of people and there are little ones running around, you've got little cousins and little brothers and sisters running around and as they play with each other, they'll probably make comments, and it's not uncommon uh, to hear a joke made, well, he didn't get that from me. Or, I, I, you know, my side of the family never did anything like that. I don't know where she picked that up from. And, and we joke and we laugh because we know that as small children, a lot of the traits and a lot of the mannerisms that they have are a direct result of a parent or a close family member that they've been watching. But, you know, there comes a time in my life when I begin making decisions for myself and I can no longer blame my parents or other family members on choices that I make. When I'm sanctified, when I'm born in to God's family, I'm a part of a new family. And I need to realize that there would have been several people reading this letter for whom they would have had to make an incredible life change to become a Christian. You think about Christians who are persecuted for their faith 
Don't you know that there were family members and friends that they left behind when they became a Christian that didn't make that decision with them? And yet Peter is saying that way of life, remember, in view of the cross, that's futile. That's empty. We need to live as obedient children. An Old Testament character that I've always had an appreciation for that really exemplifies that principle is King Josiah. And when we look in the book of, of 2 Kings, tucked away in chapters 22 and 23, is a story of a man who came to reign at a very young age. His father was Ammon, who was a very wicked king. His father was Manasseh, who was another wicked king. So if anyone could have come to the throne with family reasons to have a wicked reign, it would be Josiah. But did you know that Josiah made the decision when Hilkiah, the high priest, discovers the book of the law and he realizes all of the things that were taking place in his kingdom that weren't in accordance with God's will, he makes the decision to be different. It didn't matter what his father did. It didn't matter what his grandfather did. He was going to serve God. It's that same principle when we become children of God, when we're sanctified and set apart, we begin to make our own decisions. And so he tore down those temples to Baal. He told, tore down the Asherah poles, the high places, and he made sure that they were keeping the Passover, that they were obeying the law of Moses. Every single one of us can make that decision. You may be here this morning, and you may be the recipient of some bad decisions made by family members. They may have made decisions that have really, that have hurt you in life, and that have hurt your chances at living the kind of life you want to live. The great news of the gospel is that it doesn't matter what our family has handed down to us, every single one of us makes the decision whether or not we're going to serve God. And not only that, we are children of God, we are also redeemed by God. And that phrase is very powerful. It's a phrase that would have been used often in the marketplace to buy something back. We mentioned 1 Corinthians 6 earlier. It's just a few verses later in that same chapter, verses 19 and 20, when Paul makes the statement, you are not your own for you were bought at a price. It's that same thought of being bought, bought back at a price. Jesus would say that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As we think about the cross, we realize the price of our redemption. That precious blood of a spotless lamb that Peter talks about here in this passage. Just as in the Old Testament, a sacrifice required a lamb without blemish. Under the new covenant, a once for all sacrifice for our sins required a savior without sin. Probably one of the most apt descriptions of redemption I've ever heard is the story of a little boy who had made a boat for himself, and he was very proud of this boat. He'd built it himself, he had painted it, he put his name on the side, and he made the sail, and he would go out and he would take it out to various bodies of water and play with it. And one day he was out there on the beach and he was playing with his little boat, and a wave came across and swept it away. And he ran after it, and he he couldn't catch it. And finally, he had to give it up as being lost. It wasn't until weeks later he was walking through town, and he saw an old toy shop where a man collected antiques and old toys, and he had found that boat. He'd cleaned it up, and it looked just as good as new, and he'd put it in his store window, and he had a price on it. And the little boy came to the man, and he tried to explain, that was my boat that I made it. Of course, the store owner had no way of knowing that was true, and He said, young man, I'm sorry if that is your boat, but I don't know that you're telling the truth. You're going to have to pay me for it. And so the boy goes out and he does odd jobs and he rakes leaves and he cleans gutters and finally he scrapes together enough money to come and to buy that boat. And as he was walking out of the store, the owner heard him say 
to that boat, you're mine twice, once because I made you and twice because I bought you. When we think about redemption, we are God's because he made us. Then we chose to live in a path of sin. He sent his son and now he has bought us back. We're redeemed. And if I lose sight of the fact that I'm a child of God or that I'm redeemed, I'll lose my identity. Not only that, but as we continue reading in 1 Peter chapter 1, we begin to read that Christians follow a sanctified authority. Let's begin in verse 22, where Peter writes, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. And he goes on to quote the prophet Isaiah talking about the grass withering and the flower fading away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Earlier, Phil led us in a song about purifying our hearts. Did you notice here how Peter says we're purified? He says we've purified our souls in obeying the truth. Jesus would say something very similar as he was praying in John 17. In verse 17, he prays, Sanctify them, meaning his apostles, by thy truth. Your word is truth. God's word sets us apart. God's word sanctifies us. So as Christians, we follow a sanctified authority. My decisions are characterized by the word of God. And as we think about how true that is in our lives, I'd like for us to go back to the story of Josiah, found in 2 Kings 22. And let's look at Josiah's reaction when he does see the word of the Lord that's been handed down and has been lost. And in verse 11 of 2 Kings 22, he hears the book of uh, the law read. And now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. And then in verse 13, he says, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us. And why had the wrath of God been aroused against them? Because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. See, Josiah understood that in order to glorify God, he needed to follow the words of the book of law. He needed to follow God's word. The same thing is true for us. Living under a new covenant, we have that same responsibility. And so even though there had been uh, artifacts that were used to worship Baal that were even mixed in among some of the things in the temple, Josiah made sure that those were cleaned out and destroyed. Even though they had not celebrated the Passover because it was written in the book of the law, Josiah made sure that they celebrated the Passover. You see, he wanted his life and his reign to be characterized by following the word of God. Just a a few weeks ago, Erin Crisp brought in something that I thought was really special and she was showing it to us. It's an annual lesson commentary on Bible school lessons from 1933. And it belonged to her great-grandfather, John McCullough. And if you are familiar with that family, you know what a, a godly heritage that family has left for us and for this congregation. And I was struck with the fact as, as I looked at this and, and was thinking about all of the lessons that it contained. I thought, isn't it wonderful that years ago, in a location not very far from here at all, There were Christians coming together, living lives that were set apart by the same word of God that we study when we come together. The same word of God we're teaching our children. The same word that has sanctified God's people for generation after generation. 
And if I want to live a life that's set apart, I don't need to be taking my cues from the world. I need to be looking at the word that has endured for generations and as the prophet Isaiah said, would continue to endure. It was also interesting as I read through and looked at some of the review questions at the end of each chapter, some of those review questions were challenging. In fact, many of those questions assumed that the student in class would have done some homework outside of class and would have done some memorizing outside of class. What a challenge. There is is more to the Christian life than simply memorizing Scripture, but we need to be very careful that we're hiding God's Word in our hearts and that we're setting ourselves apart for His service by His Word. A phrase used often is, in the world and not of the world. And sometimes that's difficult for us to understand when it comes to following our sanctified authority. The same God who has told us through His Son Jesus to go into all the world is the one who told us through John in 1 John 2.15 that we should not have friendship with the world. In fact, friendship with the world, being the friend of the world, is hatred of God. And so how do we reconcile those two? Do we shut ourselves off from the world and decide, I'm only going to spend my time around people who share my beliefs and who are Christians and therefore cut ourselves from opportunities to spread God's word? Or do we decide to just go live in the world and with the world and take our cues from the world and have our life determined by how the world lives? There's a balance there. And holding to this sanctified authority will help us find that balance. Spreading God's word to others. See, as Christians, we have an authority that's different than those around us. We also have a purpose that's different than those around us. And Peter tells us about that purpose in 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 4. As he writes, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes in him will by no means be put to shame. Peter reminds us, that as we fulfill our purpose in life, that we are built on God's foundation, that Christ is the cornerstone. The stone that had once been rejected is now made the chief cornerstone. And is there any better picture of rejection by the world than Jesus on the cross? Do we get any clearer picture of the fact that God's own creation rejected His Son, nailed Him to a cross, and yet that Son is the Messiah? And it's through His blood that we have entrance into the kingdom of God. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus being the chief cornerstone. And you know, if I don't build my foundation on that cornerstone, then my building is never going to last. Here he describes each one of us as as living stones that we are being built up in the church with Christ as the chief cornerstone. And if we lose sight of that, then we're not building something that's going to last. As Christians, our purpose is to be built on God's foundation and To fulfill God's mission. And I like the different word pictures that Peter uses here to describe that. Let's go down to verse 9 as Peter writes, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He would say a chosen generation, or maybe even a chosen race in some translations. Whereas the children of Israel were God's chosen race in the Old Testament, 
to the extent that when they would come into contact with other cultures that didn't glorify God, they were commanded not to intermarry with those. They were God's chosen race, his chosen people. And yet through Christ, every single one of us can be a part of that chosen race. In fact, as Paul was writing about salvation in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, he said that there was neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, or male nor female. When it came to salvation in Christ, every single person, every single soul, had the same blessings, the same eternal inheritance. It doesn't matter where I was born. It doesn't matter what I've done in the past. I can have that same spiritual inheritance. I can be a part of that chosen race. He also uses the description of royal priesthood. And we don't live in, in a monarchy that's, that's ruled by royalty, and so this may be lost a little bit on us, but to Peter's original audience, they would have understood what royalty meant. And when you were taking royalty and priesthood, you were combining two of the most powerful offices that anyone could imagine. In fact, many kings actually had a core of priests that were their royal priesthood, that had a great deal of power and influence. Peter is telling us as Christians, we're part of that royal priesthood. We're serving the king of kings. And whereas in the Old Testament, you would come and have an offering made through a priest, now under the new covenant, we're all priests. We're all able to have that relationship with God through Jesus. We're a royal priesthood. Not only that, but we're a holy nation. We're a specific nation that's set apart. And just as Israel was led by God, and when they were true to God, God was with them. As we stay true to God, He will be true to us. As a congregation, if we seek to follow God's will, build on His foundations and fulfill His purpose, God will take care of us the way He took care of the Israelites in the Old Testament. A holy nation and then a people for God's own possession. Some translations uh, would render this a peculiar people. And that's a little confusing. It doesn't mean we have to be odd or we have to be peculiar. It's indicating the fact that we are a people for God's own possession. And so this morning, as we think about our mission as Christians, we need to ask ourselves, who owns us? Does God own us? Are, are we one of God's own possessions? I'll tell you, a very easy way to find that out is to examine my calendar, is to examine my checkbook. Where do I invest my time, my energy, and my talent? Where do I focus my thoughts? During the day when I have a chance just to think to myself, what am I thinking of? Because very likely that will tell me where I'm investing a majority of my life and what owns me. If the world owns me, if a job owns me, owns me, if other obligations own me, or if Christ owns me, if I belong to him. You see, as Christians, we live a set-apart existence. We have an authority that's set apart, and we have a purpose that's set apart. As we think about a, a very deep, rich topic that we could talk about for, for hours as we think about what it means to be sanctified let me close by encouraging all of us. We're reading the very first few verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 2, and I want you to listen to what Paul says here. To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. Sometimes in our modern vernacular, we've taken... Uh, the word saint to mean something different 
than what it means in the New Testament. In fact, when it's used in the New Testament, it's saying to someone who's been sanctified, set apart, someone who's a Christian. And as we've looked very briefly at some of the problems facing Corinth, if those Christians at Corinth who were struggling and who were in the middle of trying to leave behind their lives of immorality and to focus on God, if they were sanctified, if they could be called saints, if they were washed, then I, with all of my difficulties, all of my struggles, all of us, with all of our challenges, we can have that same blessing. So as we think about our identity today, it's, it's scary to have someone take your physical identity. It's even scarier to lose a spiritual identity. And so as we ask ourselves these difficult questions this morning, where is your identity? What is your identity wrapped up in? Have you been set apart to serve God? Have I been set apart to serve God? And if I've made that decision, if I've been washed in the blood of Christ in baptism and begin, began walking that life that's set apart, and yet I've lost my identity, and yet I, I don't have the kind of sanctified existence, I'm not following the authority that I should, I don't have the right purpose in life, what am I going to do about it? The great thing is everyone this morning can leave, every one of us, can leave secure in our spiritual identity in Christ. And if you want to make your identity secure this morning, come forward as we stand and as we sing together.